0: Cocktail College is brought to you by Mr. Black Cold Brew Coffee Liqueur. Listener, you want to know the secret to a great espresso martini? It's not the vodka, although the vodka does matter. But no, it's the coffee liqueur. And you want to know the secret to a great coffee liqueur? It's coffee. That might sound like a no-brainer, but until Mr. Black came along, people weren't really talking about that. People weren't pulling their own espresso shots in the morning. They didn't care about things like where their coffee came from or when it's roasted. But this is what sets Mr. Black apart. It's made using the finest Arabica coffee cold brew And you can really taste the difference. And I'm not just saying that because we're partnering with Mr. Black today. I'm saying bartenders have been telling me that for years. Seriously, I remember when it first came along and everyone was recommending it. And I was like, I got to try this thing. And when I did, I got it. The funny thing is that was years before espresso martini mania. And here we are. And guess what? mr black is now available nationwide head to mrblack.co to find the closest retailer to you hey this is tim mccurdy and welcome to vine cocktail college a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with america's best bartenders There are drinks trends that really only become apparent after the fact and with the aid of 2020 hindsight vision, and then there are those that are impossible to avoid in the moment while they're in full swing. The espresso martini definitely falls into the latter camp. This much was already true the first time we covered this cocktail, back in 2022. Nearly two years on, this stunning, shaken, caffeinated concoction feels like it still has tons of gas left in the tank. Which does raise the question of whether the Espresso Martini can shake the shackles of its trending status and join the likes of the Margarita, Martini and Manhattan in becoming a timeless classic. This would be no mean feat, nor can I really recall another drink that's stood such a chance in recent times. What does that say about the Espresso Martini then? And how did we arrive at this juncture? As with all modern-ish drinks that make it into the mainstream, I think a few things are at play here. A memorable name, distinctive, striking appearance, and flavour profile with mass appeal. In the specific case of the espresso martini, I think another ingredient in its success has been, well, one of its ingredients, Mr. Black. It's no surprise that the modern resurgence of this cocktail in the US has coincided with the introduction of a high-quality cold brew coffee liqueur in the manner in which bartenders have embraced that product someone who's infinitely better placed to talk about that phenomenon than I am is Stefan Karpinski the US brand ambassador for Mr. Black since 2019 Steven's career in the bar industry prior to that spanned close to 20 years and he also has experience as a professional barista like I said phenomenally well placed to talk on this topic listener It's the progression of vodka espresso to espresso martini, the many different waves of modern coffee culture, and the making of a contemporary icon. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. (laughs) You hear that, listener? That is the sound of a freshly cracked bag of espresso beans. We're bringing the energy today because it's the espresso martini and we're joined by none other than Stefan Karpinski in the studio. Stefan, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well thanks for having me. And hello, friends out there in the <laughs> podcast universe. Thank you for bringing these delicious and wonderfully smelling espresso beans. I just scattered them all over the floor there. I was
1: getting really excited, <laughs> which is all right. I mean, really, there's no wrong way to do it. The <laughs> energy just staying caffeinated. <laughs> We're staying caffeinated. Yeah. We established that before we went
0: on air. The studio's smelling great with that. There's a lot of energy, which is apt for the cocktail before we get ahead of ourselves, though. I want to slow things down just a little bit. I've, I've got a book here, old-fashioned, and I want to run a quote for us real quick because, you know, we like to give our listeners a lot of gifts here at Cocktail College and we like to spread knowledge. We also like to dispel myths. And I want to share something here today that I think is going to blow some people's minds that are familiar with this cocktail and maybe think they're familiar with the story. So please bear with me on this one, Stefan. The book is Dick Tales. Uh, The author is Dick Bradsell. The man himself. Exactly. The man, the legend. And we're going to get into all of this, but I was flicking through this recently and came across this and I, I, I kind of wanted to share this moment with everyone. So this is the moment. There I was working away in the busy Soho brasserie, Dick writes in handwriting here. It's a copy of his actual handwritten notes. Coffee grounds leaking into my ice well when a young woman asked, can you give me a drink that will wake me up? Then fuck me up. Who was she? I have no idea, Dick writes. (laughs) I was told an American model by a friend, Keir McLeod. I truly don't know, but that was the inspiration for this drink. What a legend. Incredible bartender, incredible legacy. But the the, the two, three sentences there dispel the long-running myths that the quote there is out there. Everyone knows the quote. yeah. But then everyone always says,
1: Naomi Campbell... Or Kate Moss. Yeah, they always want to go to one of those two, generally. One of those two. Neither of whom are American. Neither of whom are American, and neither of them were of drinking age, even in London at the time. (laughs) Even in London at the time. And look, I know
0: models often start at a younger age their careers, but again, not American. And, And here's another thing about the tale as well. Like, I've seen a lot of places cover it that say... Dick never revealed in his lifetime who right. the model was. Like it was almost kind of a courtesy or a secret, which I do like that aspect of the He was a bit tale. of a gentleman,
1: and it really does create this mystery and intrigue into the tale that uh, has... Permeated through the years, mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, um, we can get more into that later for sure. Because I've, I've spent a lot of time with his daughter B, and she has some ideas into um, <laughs> a little bit of that story as well. So. I did some uh,
0: googling as well on the friend Kier McLeod, spelled M W C L O U D, which is a strange spelling for mm-hmm. McLeod. Um, Dick might've gotten it wrong. Couldn't find anything. So if any of the listeners there have any leads on that would be fascinated to know more. Don't know whether that was someone involved in the bar industry or not. Um, that was just a little teaser (laughs) of where we're going to go, but I I want to bring us back to the present. Stefan, tell me about the espresso martini craze. It's real. It's massive. It's
1: happening. It's happening. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Right. And I've been making espresso martinis for over you know, about 25 years now. Um, Back in my early, earliest days of bartending, um, that drink was a lot different than it is today. Um, but man, is it having a moment in the States? It's always been a thing, obviously, in London. And it really had a had a huge run in Australia. Still is, you know, such a coffee-obsessed nation, right? Um, and it, it's just something that has just finally caught on like wildfire here in New York and throughout the rest of the U.S., which I think is really special. and mm-hmm. something that I think through our travels with Mr. Black from Australia to, you know, Asia to Europe and here in the U.S., something we noticed as a through line is that wherever people were drinking great coffee, they were drinking espresso martinis and loving them. So mm-hmm. it was just a matter of time for Americans to really get on the bandwidth with, with the, you know, really delicious coffee that's out there in the universe and roasting it a bit more intentionally and brewing it more intentionally. And as... We saw those trend lines go through, obviously, here on the East Coast and on the West Coast with all the great coffee out there um, and heading inwards into the middle of the country, just seeing this cocktail take fire, which is just exciting. Yeah, it's so exciting.
0: And I'm keen to get your take as well. You know, working with the brand, honestly, being the best person the best place person to talk <laughs> about this craze, especially here in the US, right? right. Which is very different, like you say, from, um, you know, the UK and London or Australia as well, where they have different coffee cultures. And this drink, yeah, anecdotally for me, feels like it's it never really went out of fashion in those places. Yeah, Here in the US though, it might be hard for you to answer this because you are so involved with the brand. So a lot of your work, I would imagine, would have been around this cocktail. But for me, it feels like, this drink really took off mid slash post pandemic. I think maybe it was happening a little bit before. And I really don't have any answers as to why that is. Of course, it's a great drink. Sure. But, you know, yourself having worked in the industry for a long time, like a great drink and even a great name doesn't make a famous cocktail.
1: Right. And I have a lot. I have a lot of opinions on this. Um I think I'm Uniquely situated, right? To have 100%. seen it from a ton of different angles. I will tell you that I think that is pretty much the right timing, you know, coming out of COVID. And a lot of the, the reasons why we're kind of assuming that the drink took off is that people needed a little extra to get them back into conversations, into the public, and, mm-hmm. you know, getting out of their homes and getting out of their, you know, work from home clothes, right? And I think having a little bit of a little jolt with an espresso martini or two in between as a transition between work and play really did help people with social anxiety. But I I will tell you, like, pre-pandemic, there was a little bit going on. Dante here was making a really delicious, very fluffy espresso martini. Shout out to the Dante friends. I mean, they really, Mm -hmm. really do a great job. And I've had a couple... The first time I really saw espresso martinis as a viable option was probably Dustin Newsom in L.A. and the Nomad team with Leo and the gang Um, both adding flavors that you wouldn't normally find in espresso martinis using more modern coffee, really delicious arabica coffee that's well roasted. Um, And then both of those recipes that I tried actually around the same time, 2018, 2019, had a little bit of aquavit in them, which I think was just like, uh, you know, I've been drinking coffee all my life. And I just think I took the flavor profile being so complex and amazing for granted. And the more I had cocktails with coffee and, and non-traditional ingredients that would be mixed with coffee. It just really set off some beautiful, you know, parts of my palate in really lovely ways. So both those cocktails really got me inspired. And that was right around the time I met Tom with Mr. Black, uh, and we started bringing Mr. Black to the U.S. So I think all those things started setting the groundwork, Mm -hmm. right, for the espresso martini to come back. And then through the power of people looking for a way to get back out after the pandemic, and also some really savvy marketing by the Mr. Black, you know The whole legend team with Mr. Black that I got the opportunity to work with um, during the pandemic and through it, we did a lot of targeted ads. I don't know if yeah. anybody saw. Um, and a lot of just speaking about coffee and cocktails and, and espresso martinis in general. I think that we evangelized uh, that serve so much that I think it became more common. But mm. I'll tell you, by 2019, I was working on behalf of Mr. Black in the, here in the U.S., and I was pleading with my boss not to lead with the Mister with the you know espresso martini serve as our hero cocktail because the industry wasn't ready and that's another thing right is the espresso martini if you don't have the mise en place ready to go sure is a very complicated drink mm-hmm. you know the server needs to go into the back and go grab you a shot of espresso you need to get that and you need to get your tin ready you got to get all your ingredients that aren't in front of you you got to go pull the coffee liqueur down off the shelf um, so it slows your your whole process down in the well um and it wasn't it was only when consumers and guests started walking in asking for them with such regularity that bartenders and bars had to come up with solutions to mm-hmm. the you know the, the problem of how do we make these things quick that the espresso martini really took off and it was right around you know right after the pandemic 2020 2021 where uh, the all that groundwork was in place yeah. for this cocktail just to soar mhm
0: I think there's a there's a there's a few things there that I really like to get into. The the first, you know, you mentioned that you know like the the, the guest demand kind of playing a big part of that. Um, there's a phrase we use in the UK, uh, so I I'll get I'll allow us to use it here because of the ties here, right? There's a phrase we use in the UK referring specifically to cricket and wickets, and we say one brings three, right? So like you get one batsman out, you might get three in a row. Hmm. Uh, it's like a momentum thing, right? Yeah, uh, And that might be completely lost on all our American listeners. I'm sorry about that. Well, but the look cricket that thing out. is, <laughs> yeah. sorry, it went right over <laughs> yeah. my head, but I do understand the idea, well, the logic behind it. Exactly. And I think that the espresso martini is one of those cocktails. Right. One goes out in the room. I don't know, if I'm a bartender who's in the weeds, I might ask my server, you know, take this out, but take this out on the right. DL. Right. Like, because, you know, and there are ways and we're going to get into it today that yeah. you can, you know, speed up, expedite production of it and, and service. But it is one of those that we talk about a lot in this show.
1: One goes out, everyone orders it. It's great. In the U.S., we call that the fajita effect.
0: <laughs>
1: nice. The sizzling fajita effect. Yeah. One goes out at Chili's and 100 go out.
0: Oh, uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about when you were speaking, too, you spoke about 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. That really is about the time, I'd say maybe closer to 2019 or late 2018, when just being in this industry, but as a journalist and as predominantly a writer at the time rather than an editor now, going to bars, speaking with bartenders. And Mr. Black just came up in all kinds of different ways, whether it was in interviews for products, you know, that they were recommending that maybe people hadn't heard of at the time or sit up at the bar. Hey, have you tried this thing? It's cool. It's new. So... The bartender buy-in, and this is, you know, this is not because we're, you know, we're doing an episode together here. I Sure. I, I probably mentioned this in the last version of the recording that or the previous version of this episode that we did. Maybe I didn't, but so the bartender buy-in there clearly sounds like it was there from day one. And I want us to I want to bring us back to that point. Mm-hmm. But before we do, we teased it at the beginning. We're not afraid to jump around here. I hope the <laughs> listeners are keeping up with us here. We're caffeinated, but let's go back to the origins. We spoke about the tale a little bit, but maybe if you can give us a bit more context for who Dick Bradsell is, sure. where he is at the time,
1: and the evolution of this drink as well. Yeah, it has a really fascinating story. And I didn't even know it, you know, even reading Dick's book a long time ago, you know, such a legend, right? Not only did, does he have the espresso martini under his name, but he has the bramble, the mm-hmm. Russian spring punch. I mean, these are, this is back in the day when if you put something in a, in a cocktail, glass it most more than likely made you famous right if you were doing (laughs) anything interesting at the time yeah i think setting the scene for people is think about what it must have looked like drinking culture in in the mid 80s in london right uh it was still very socially normal for you know men to drink beer pints and maybe some whiskey women you know drank more in the afternoon sherry wine maybe a a gin cocktail of some Mm -hmm. sort uh but it was still very like cut right down the line right it's, it's a big tea-drinking nation. We all know that. It's uh, less of a cocktail, more of a beer, you know, mm-hmm. like pints of, of beer was is really the thing, like bitter, extra special bitter. Those are mm-hmm. all things that are synonymous, especially at that time. You drink in a pub. You drink at a country club. You don't drink at a cocktail bar. Um, so setting that scene to think about how this cocktail, this iconic cocktail, came from that world is really special, right? So there you are. You've got Dick Bradsall working at the Soho Browsery. In Soho, London, which was the one part of London that if this drink was going to come out of at the time, it had to come out of there, Mm -hmm. right? Everything else was just a a local pub. You had your bangers, beans and chips and a a pint (laughs) and uh, you go home, you know, and watch some telly and you go to bed, right? And uh, here is Soho, mid 80s. You've got supermodels, you've got, you know, musicians, you've got artists, all this really exciting things going on with young people in Soho. That's where people wanted to go, see and be seen. Um, And so there he was working at a spot that had one of the first espresso machines installed in all of London, right? And he had just had it installed at the Soho Brasserie a couple months before this story that, you know, we started this episode with. And uh, he had been trying to perfect how to make a, a pull a shot of espresso in a machine that he had no knowledge of prior to. (laughs) Nobody taught him how to do it. I'm sure I could only imagine how bad the coffee was that he was using. Oh, God, You know, really bad commodity-grade coffee, over-roasted, heavy Robusta in the blend, and trying to pull a really, like, extringent bitter shot of espresso. Because that's what they thought espresso should be at the time. Um, So he'd been playing around with that, and it was in that moment, in that scene, when the supermodel walks into his bar and the story, you know, unfolds in front of him, And he instantly thought about coffee because he had coffee grounds in his well. He was smelling it. It was right next to his workstation. He was like, I'm going to pull a shot of espresso. I'm going to add a shot of vodka and a little bit of sugar, shake it up and serve it on rocks down with three beans and three coffee beans. is synonymous with uh, like the old Sambuca serves, you know, health, wealth and happiness. And he was like very passionate about, you know, holding that as the the way the drink should be garnished and he called that drink the vodka espresso so it's kind of it predated the espresso martini by about 10 years but it's the ancestral like creation of the Mm -hmm. drink um and that's really where it was left and he started serving them when people were looking for something that would wake them up a little Mm -hmm. um the next bar he worked at was more pharmaceutical themed so that's where the pharmaceutical stimulant comes from he basically started playing with a little bit of coffee liqueur in that recipe still serving it down three beans a little bit of you know froth on top pharmaceutical stimulant. And it wasn't until about you know, eight to 10 years later in the 90s when everybody was drinking something in a martini glass that he thought about elevating it, pulling it off of the rocks, making it such an elegant serve. And that was really the special moment for the espresso martini because now you've got this super iconic cocktail that is instantly recognizable, right? If you send yeah. one out, you you know exactly what it is. and uh, And it's also delicious. He finally added... Uh, B has some old, you know, I I think it's funny that you're reading out of the book and it was his handwritten note because that that's how it takes me back to my early days of bartending. That's how we used to write everything down. Yep. Like, I don't remember the specs for a a Mai Tai. So you write it down on a cocktail napkin. Hopefully your bar has white ones, not black ones. (laughs) And you just like stuff it in your your pocket. Right. You're like, I guess I'm gonna have to hold on to this in case somebody orders it again. Right. Yeah. And that's how we used to communicate in the bar. Right. Like. If we had to we're slipping people notes with beverage napkins, if you were a cocktail writer in the eighties, you would have wrote down whatever you planned to write the next day in that on that cocktail napkin. The cocktail napkin, I think, you know, nowadays kinda gets lost. But at the time it, it had a lot more uses. Yeah. I mean yeah. famously, you know, as an aside here,
0: but famously or the story goes and yeah. I've heard multiple people say this, but that's how the the last word makes its way to New York. Murray right. Stenson over there on the West Coast Seattle. and then in Seattle. Yeah. And as I'm told by a couple different people, not himself, although he's a you know, he's a friend, but Brian Miller yep. takes down that recipe, comes back, introduces it to his friends who at death and co at the t- at the time. You got know, Phil Ward, Joaquin Simo, these yep. guys, you know, and suddenly they're obsessed with this thing on a on a, cocktail on a, nap- on a napkin or a or, or a coaster, right? But same idea. it's, yeah. it's phenomenal
1: that these things spread that way. Right. And I, I think that tactile thing, you know, gets lost sometimes. I like that. in, And this is also a side. But this is, you know, we're talking about cocktails. We're talking about life. Um, I think that we're we're pining for more of those like tactile things these for days. Sure. Um, And I think that's great. And I think the cocktail world is, you know, one of those things where we kind of hold on to some of that history a little bit more than others. So I think it is special and and great for younger listeners who are in our industry, but maybe have never had the opportunity to. Right on a cocktail napkin, because you probably don't have a pen and, and a cocktail napkin in front right. of you, you have your phone and, with a notes app, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've seen this this cocktail napkin that he's, he wrote back in the day on, on working out just the right amount of coffee liqueur, and there was actually two in his final recipe in varying amounts, because he was trying to create a, a he was trying to balance a cocktail and get a coffee flavor profile. Using some old world coffee liqueurs that were using really suspect coffee if they were using coffee at all. Yeah. So he was trying to replicate a a flavor profile in his mind and his, you know, and I think we all have one of the greatest things about coffee is that over 70% of us here in the U.S. drink it every day. But we all think of it in a different term, right? Like the way I drink coffee isn't the way you drink coffee. I think when I was a barista, I'd bemoan that because you never make the same latte in a shift unlike you know in the bar world where you make the same daiquiri every time mm-hmm. um, but nowadays that I'm not very saying anymore I really embrace that that we all have a different you know individual for way that sure. we enjoy coffee and he for him he was trying to like hearken back to a cup of coffee in his mind and seeing him work that all out and even draw the cocktail with, with the separation <laughs> of the yeah. crema to the, to the co- with three beans in there even had like a top down view like all <laughs> on one napkin um, I'll have to like B should really like put that up on her Instagram account yeah. or something cuz I really feel like people if they saw that would have a better connection with him now that we've lost him you know um it would be really great to have that you know more people to see it mm-hmm. but it, it really is fascinating that that was kind of what he was going for and that was the espresso martini and that's where it was and that's you know it was the number you know number 1 number 2 all the oh, way to number 5 cocktail in London ever since it's never gone away and at some point it made it to Australia, surprise, surprise, because Australians have a love affair of coffee. That's you know, th- there's nobody else in, where do, the, in where, the world. Where does that come from, by the way? Well, it's not because they grow great coffee. Exactly, because it doesn't grow. Yeah, in the you know, the only area of Australia that's in the coffee belt is literally badlands. Like you could not survive there, let alone a <laughs> let alone <laughs> a tropical yeah. tree, right? right. Like a tropical plant. Um, you know, I think it, it has a lot to do with the same reason why we drink coffee here in the U.S. Right? It was kind of a no offense, but kind of a, uh, you know, a middle finger to the crown. Yeah. Right. At some point, uh, we got pretty upset with some taxation <laughs> um, and it wasn't on tea. It was yeah. most likely on yeah. alcohol, but we're not throwing alcohol into the yeah. Boston Harbor. Luckily, y'all taxed tea next. And that was easier to throw over. Um, <laughs> but that was our moment and the moment for Australia actually happened a lot later. Obviously, mm-hmm. the the continent started a little later than us. Um, and it was around the ni- 1900s, turn of the century, when Italian and Spanish and French immigrants came down to work on railroads, to work in, in different, you know, capacities. They brought their coffee culture down. Mm-hmm. And they brought their coffee culture down in not just coffee, but the ritual and the the care that, that you know, Southern Europeans take with coffee. And that just caught on with, with the Aussie mindset and the, mm-hmm. the style of living and I don't know if you've been down there any any time the last never, 15, 20 never years. Never
0: been. I Have a lot of Australian friends, especially yeah. when I, you know, met a lot of good Australian friends uh, when I lived in London and worked sure. in London. You know, there's a lot of Aussies in London too, right? Oh yeah, but um, and they get around. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they <laughs>
1: do, they do, <laughs> no doubt. But uh, yeah, never never been out there yeah. myself, sadly. There's, I mean, you, it's kind of like drinking in a pub or like pub culture in in yeah. England, right? Where you have you can have breakfast in a pub. And then you go to work and then you like go have lunch at a pub and you go back to work and then you have like an afternoon meeting at the pub and then you <laughs> go back to work and then you have a happy hour at the pub, dinner at a pub and go to bed. Like that's kind of the, the coffee culture there is you have a cup of coffee on your way to work. You get to the office, you grab your, your office mates and you go downstairs to, for another coffee and discuss what's going on that day. Then you go back up and you come back down for a little pastry and then you go back like your time spent in the cafe every day is like almost if not more than it's spent in your at, at your desk i that's feel like that's wild it's just so ingrained in the culture and it and it's so advanced it's mm-hmm. incredible to see because i mean I, I brought you some really delicious coffee that's roasted here in new york a uh, really great colombian coffee um and the roaster here does really amazing things with coffee mm-hmm. um but i think people just take it for granted here in the us for the most part they you know especially here in midtown They probably make five pour overs a day, right? Of like really high end single, you know, single origin coffee. More than likely they're making espresso drinks with milk, getting people in and out. But in Australia, you got these menus that look like wine lists with vintages. No. And it's insane. Like there's a a couple that come to mind that are just, they're flash freezing all their coffee right after it's roasted. So it's at its peakest moment. You can just pick it out off of a lineup and be like, I will have the 2014. No. Chinese coffee that's been flash-frozen sitting there. You know, first off, Chinese coffee is pretty rare anyway. So, like, that one, like, poked out to me. I was like, I need to try that, right? And and then they pull out, like, a little vial that's been frozen, and they just they grind it on the spot. They they brew it. It's, that's the level of detail and care that they put into their coffee. Wow. So it makes sense that over the years, the espresso martini was, like, held, you know, at, at a high level by the Aussies. And it was really... You know, with the bringing Mr. Black here to the States and Better Coffee, a lot of those better coffee shops here in New York and, and on the West Coast are Aussie owned. So like they really did have a huge hand in this, a lot more than Tom just coming out, Tom Baker, our, our founder, uh, coming out to New York in 2017, you know, with with a couple of bottles of Mr. Black and, you know, renting a really dingy Airbnb out in you know, Red Hook or something, you know, and, and evangelizing <laughs> on his own. Right. I, I think. Aussies have a bigger hand in in just how this cocktail was able to survive kind of the dark ages, yeah, until it got to its moment here in the U.S. That's
0: really it's really fascinating to hear that, and it, you know, I I knew of the Aussies' reputation for being such great coffee lovers, but didn't realize quite to that level. And it does make me really more interested to go out there and check that yeah. out more because that's the kind of thing I can geek out over. It's it's interesting as well that you know we talked about that espresso machine basically being the first that Dick had ever come across himself. Um, Really interesting, too, that the neighborhood he was in, Soho, like, as you mentioned, artists there, music. It's also the red light district. It's also the the, the gay district as well, where you have a lot of the gay clubs. Especially back then, it was the only neighborhood where anything was going on. Exactly. And then, I want to say almost exactly around this time, because I come from a restaurant background, then it also becomes this Italian hub, too. Mm -hmm. A lot of Italian chefs as we start caring more, first start thinking about things like Michelin stars in the UK, Italian chefs looking to make a name for themselves come over and kind of Soho becomes this hub too for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's interesting that that was right on the cusp of that. Um, Again, this is anecdotal and I didn't grow up in London. I grew up in a much smaller city. But We talk about the different waves of coffee culture. And, you know, I'm going to age myself here. I'll say, that (laughs) you know, I I was a young teenager 20, 21 years ago, 22 years ago, right? Um, And around that time, it was very exciting for us in our town that a Starbucks opened. (laughs) Right.
1: Before that, it was freeze-dried instant coffee. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like the UK and the US have a lot of similarities. Very similar when it comes to coffee culture. Which is pretty sad, though, because... You guys just focused on tea. Yeah. We were just happily drinking Folgers Crystals. Yeah. Like that was the only thing that existed <laughs> until around the time you're talking when yeah. Starbucks brought like cafe culture from exactly. Southern Europe yeah. to the U.S. and to the U.K. around that same time. And look, you know, we can look back at that now as we're in the, you know, the third wave. As right. You know, are we still in the third wave? Are we getting I close mean, to the fourth wave? I don't yeah. know. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. If if, you, if you run in some of the circles I run in with, you know, all the coffee festivals all over the U.S., some people think we're in like the seventh wave, Wow, but that's like getting pretty granular. Yeah. yeah, I think for our- No pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) Granular, yeah. Um, (laughs) But for our discussion here with a bunch of bartenders probably listening in, I think that's, I think that we can still suffice that most of the country is in the third wave. So mainly in the
0: third wave. Great. Um, I think we need to look back and take our hats off, though, to that second wave, to Starbucks. I mean, forget the unions, forget everything that's going on now, forget franchises and (laughs) capitalism or whatever. You know, uh, those are not things that I want to get into. But it did a lot for Coffee Call. You know, the fact that that spread even across the Atlantic and... I'm telling you, like, in our city became a thing. We were excited to go to Starbucks. Like, that would be your plan. It wasn't a part of your day. It was like, I'm going to go to Starbucks today. And I like looking at that time period because then it brings us back to Mr. Black here. Because there's a couple of coffee liqueurs at that time still knocking around. One, two, maybe three Legacy Brands Max that everyone's using they're balanced in a way. They're they're sweet drinks, right? Correct. They have coffee flavor rather than they taste <laughs> like coffee, right? Right. And maybe importantly as well, they have a good big
1: body. They have texture. Sure. Yeah, from all the bricks. Exactly. Yeah. From the sugar and all and of it. Some, and some of the parts per million of coffee or whatever. Exactly. Whatever so it the, is. Yeah. The
0: flavor. So you have that and that seems fine for them. But then, really, we move into the third wave. We start caring more about coffee. Mm-hmm. We start thinking about things like when was something roasted? Where did it come from? We start embracing, and I don't know when that happened here, but I had never come across a cold brew coffee till I moved to the U.S. in 2017. That's pretty early for a cold brew coffee here in the U.S. too. I feel yeah. like it really, it was probably around then. It was probably, yeah. Yeah. And, and and that was here in New York. But again, that was early. And so then you have all of these factors coming together. And then suddenly, Mr. Black comes along, cold brew, coffee liqueur. And just at the perfect time, because I would imagine that bartenders and people that care about drinks, people that intellectualize drinks and food, they start to be like, well, I care about every ingredient. This is cold brew. Tell me about it. Tell me what's different. I can taste the difference. So that's why I want to hear from you now, Stefan. What makes a cold <laughs> brew coffee liqueur different? What's right. the process look like? What's the outcome? Obviously, right. better. I, I'm <laughs> going to say better here for the both of us. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. But
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the coffee drinking culture in the U.S. and the U.K. and cocktail culture, they kind of follow a pretty similar trajectory, right? Yep. Mid-century, it was all about speed and how you know cheaply you can do something right, to maximize profits or it, very commodity driven, right? In coffee world, that was your Folgers crystals, your instant coffee, right? You can instantly have gratification of really bad coffee, or you can make a whole lot of it and hold it on a hot burner, right? That's coffee mid-century. Um, cocktails mid-century, kind of same thing. It was just, yeah. you know, easy in, easy out, not really using quality ingredients. Um, and that's where all the old world coffee liqueurs come from. They're stuck in in that generation, that mid Mid-century generation, like post-war, um, how do we do things that are shelf-stable? Yeah, um, and not thinking about the raw ingredient much, right? Even though it says it on the on the labels. And then when you get into, you know, the explosion of the the cocktail movement is right around the time Starbucks really was on every block, early two thousands. Now all of a sudden, we're thinking about going back into some of the old traditional things, and. A lot of it's performative. Uh, in the cocktail world, I think it was a little bit more intentional, you know, yeah. trying to harken back hundred years of, of cocktail history in you know a couple of years, which was a, a really exciting time for a lot of us that were involved in that era. Um, and coffee kind of followed suit, but the coffee liqueurs were stuck in the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies—the um, sour mix period, if we will, right? right. Like the that's sour a good, mix. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what we're talking about here like quick solutions, right? Unnatural. Right. Yeah. But shelf stable forever. Forever. Yeah. yeah. Forever convenient. (laughs) Um, And I think there was a a small moment here in the U.S. with people who really cared about the stuff they were using where we didn't have we had it. We had a question. We didn't have an answer for it. we were looking for something better with coffee in our in our bars because coffee was is always in bars. It's been in bars since bars existed. Right. As like the first thing you do when you get into a bar is you Make some coffee because it's gonna be a long shift. You should probably have some coffee, right? It's a For real sure. MVP. Um, and then you ice your wells down, open up the doors and, and you know turn the turn the music on. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean coffee's always been around, but it's been bad, you know like so I think a few of us were starting to make our own. We would go to our local coffee roaster coffee shop and try a hand at making coffee syrups or mm-hmm. coffee infusions or whatever. And playing around with better coffee because there was no solution for it. Um, and that's when Mr. Black came over. And really, when I say Mr. Black, Tom Baker, like, literally came over on a, on a f- couple of flights to New York and started show, showing people what they've been doing in Australia for, you know, f- quite a few years at that point. We're, we just celebrated our 10th year anniversary at Mr. Black. Wow. So in 2013, um, our founder, um, our other founder, who who is the guy who, like, put stuff into bottles, right? Um, uh, Philip is just, like, he's a botanist by trade. And so when he retired super early and he won it life, right, he, he gets this great, beautiful uh, house on, on, the, on the water, right, basically on the beach in the central coast of Australia. And he starts playing around with distillation. Um, he's putting plants in bottles. So he's like, obviously coffee was going to get there, right? It's a botanical. It's this really incredible thing that Aussies love. And so he finally was like, what if I put real coffee in a coffee liqueur? what would that taste like? Surprise. Delicious, right? Um, and we got a little bit of money to be like, hey, go to the U.S. and, you know, see, it, pitch this. And Tom was able to very quickly get some bartenders to get behind it because we, I think a few of us were really looking for a solution. And what a brilliant thing. I mean, if you're going to try to win out there in the universe, especially in our universe, find the nichiest thing that doesn't have an answer, right? Like, we didn't have an answer for coffee behind the bar. Coffee is really delicious when mixed with alcohol. And lo and behold, Mr. Black is really delicious, right? And the reason for it is that we have complete control of the coffee through its whole process. We call it from, you know, basically from bean to bottle, right? So Mm -hmm. we're sourcing, we're we're working with people to help source really delicious coffees, paying, you know, top dollar for some of the best coffees in the world from Colombia and Ethiopia and bringing them to the central coast of Australia and utilizing all that love for coffee that Aussies have. Um, and it's taken ten years, but we've really perfected the roasting of our coffees for Mr. Black, blending them to make just a really delicious like coffee house blend that's really round and luxurious and just reminds you of a great cup of coffee, right? And then we use this cold brew process. And I think once again it was a solution to a problem of how do we get that all that really beautiful flavor into the bottle and not have it just instantly degrade on you, right? At some point, it's going to come in contact with light. And at some point, it's going to come in contact with oxygen. And those things are going to degrade coffee super quick. Interesting. Like, if you think about how long a shot of espresso lasts before it's just super bitter and undrinkable, yes. it's a matter of minutes, right? As soon as the crema dissipates, you're pretty much done. Like, mm-hmm. you're not going to have an enjoyable experience. Even like a percolated cup of coffee, a, yeah. a, you know, a, a pour-over, what have you, has a 5, 10, 15-minute lifespan, and then it's no longer as tasty. Versus? Versus cold brew, where you're not adding any extra heat to the process. It's, you've mm-hmm. already infused a lot of heat into you know, using the roasting process to you know, caramelize all those aminos and sugars that are stored in the beans. Um, you've already created a lot of you know, volatile compounds into the coffee using all that heat mm-hmm. through the roasting process. Using it again only makes it degrade faster. So the cold brew process, which... It's been around since the 1700s in, in Japan. I don't know why we just got wind of it, but we did. Um, actually does have these great benefits of being a lot more shelf-stable. Yeah. If you make a cold brew concentrate at home, if you infuse it, you can keep it in your fridge for two weeks and it'll taste delicious. Yeah, well, which I is, also
0: have colleagues here who will buy a cold brew in the morning. They're still sipping on it at 5 p.m.
1: Yeah, right. And, and, and that's like a not even a concentrate, you know what I mean? Yeah, so. <laughs> and the other, the, the other benefits of cold brew is that you can concentrate you know, the the parts per million of coffee in, in solution a lot more than than a hot brewing method.
0: Ah, uh, of course, and yeah. And
1: without all that extra added heat, you're kicking out a lot of the acidity and bitterness. A lot more of the truer coffee, like fruit characteristics come through. The one thing you really, the one negative if you're brewing coffee, you know, cold brew at home, is that you lose most of the aroma. Like if you're cold brewing, because it's an infusion, it's like a big tea bag, right? So it's it's just dissipating. It's volatile, you know, aroma compounds through the air. As it goes, and we've that was one of the hardest things that we 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 really searched for with Mister Black is to try to ensure we trap as much of the aroma in the bottle as possible, and we've had to learn ways to do that. You know that are, are those natural
0: proprietary or are those are or those, those relatively top secret or but, the, can you
1: give us an idea? I can give you some hints. Right, the 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 moment where this happened, where the most of those volatile aroma compounds dissipate is when you grind coffee because you're grinding coffee. You know you're spinning that you know, burr grinder at a heavy, you know, a heavy clip, and it's just throwing aromas out in the universe. So we've found some ways to trap some of that into the bottle so that when you crack a fresh bottle of Mr. Black, it smells like it's perfectly there. delicious, freshly roasted coffee. And I think that, you know, as we know, like we taste with a lot more than just our tongues, right? And like the, the olfactory is really important. Um, and that's a lot of the process. And using that cold brew process really does allow us to, To offer, you know, home bartenders or bartenders at you know, at some of the cocktail bars that we all love to frequent, just this superior product, right, that is super stable. You can open it up. You don't have to put it in your fridge like vermouth. It's uh, got a high enough alcohol content, you know, 50 proof uh, vodka base so that that the coffee is the only thing that's – you're tasting mm-hmm. like in mr black we use four ingredients which i think is really lovely to be able to talk about aussies have this saying they, they say uh just do what it says on the tin mate and it's yeah. like it's just this saying that they have
0: we have it in the uk as well there's a there's a there's a brand of paint uh, really there's a there's a brand of varnish that we use for uh for fences and, oh, okay. and floors it's called ron seal and their tagline was always does exactly what it says on the tin
1: yeah. I think that's, you know, and, yeah. it's such anyway, an Aussie mindset. Too. Yes. Just like, Hey, just do what it sa- says on the tin. Like if it's a, a tin of garbanzo beans, there's should be one ingredient on the back, right? Like not a here in the U S there's probably 12, but yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in Australia, it should just say hundred percent garbanzo beans. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that's really impactful and, and we embody that it's vodka, you know, coffee, sugar, and water. That's it. That's all we put in Mr. Black. Everything else is, you know, you it, is not needed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's super impactful and And when we're talking about buy-in with with the industry, with the bartenders, that was a lot of what we were looking for. We were looking for something that was, you know, transparent, delicious, stable. You know, when Tom came to my bar to taste me on Mr. Black, long before it was available in California, where I was bartending and and running bars at the time, um, that was the biggest thing I was looking for because I was making my own stuff that was obviously way less stable than (laughs) what we're making at Mr. Black. And when he told me, like, yeah, mate, like, this bottle's gonna taste delicious. So, will the next, so, will the next, so, will the next, so I was like, ah, uh, when can I get it? Yeah. You know, just let me know. I think that's a great point there. You know, like, bartenders are looking
0: for, in my experience, they're looking for two things. Like you say, if you turn the bottle around, you see all these ingredients, you start to see stabilizers and, you know, uh, colorants and things like that. Then immediately, bartenders are gonna think, okay, how can I do this but naturally? Right, and then, from there, the question becomes, okay, if there's a product that's available that is natural, is it going to be cheaper or more consistent or of the same quality that I can do and if you can hit at least two, if not all three of those, then the bartender's going to buy it why why wouldn't you right,
1: right? you want and consistency. i think we, i think we we you know not we, we reminded people that there was a niche that needed filling because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think for the longest time, what my job was just evangelizing for the the existence of coffee liqueur in the universe. Because a lot of people are yeah. just like, we don't need it. You know, we can make something closer to a, a vodka espresso and kick that ingredient out and save some money. But if you've ever had a vodka espresso, it has no body. It's really thin. And the power of, of having something like Mr. Black is it holds in this lovely way on your palate the flavor of the coffee, the the you know alcohol from the vodka, the sugar, all those things together in this really lovely way. And it helps ensure that there's a ton of parts per million of coffee protein in the drink. So you have this beautiful, stable foam, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the other thing I think is, you know, when you're making espresso martinis, you know, they used to be when I first started bartending and I'll date myself, they used to be like a chocolate martini. Nobody had a recipe. So no bar had a standard for it and nobody had a napkins laying around right unless you made one for a guest and you went off shift and you're like oh they might order a second here's how i made it right so that way at least for that day there was some consistency cuz we all know in our industry in the in the in the you know bar and hospitality industry the the worst thing you can do is not be consistent cuz then people can pick you apart right um yeah so we would like scramble and mm-hmm. every drink was different so i think getting back to dick's recipe and and really having a standardized way of doing it in your bar, for your bar, is super impactful and important. And it helps, you know, separate you from everybody else, whether you're using house-made ingredients or not. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that the connection between
0: taste and smell and that that you drink with both of them. Uh, We also spoke before about the fact that, first of all, you drink with your eyes. And this is such a fantastic, visually appealing drink. It's one of the most iconic-looking cocktails i can think of Mm -hmm. and i think dick must have realized that when he was drawing it on the napkin and when he switches from the vodka espresso right which is you know he's losing out on a lot there by having the rocks you don't get that beautiful separation as much or the rocks might interrupt the the espresso beans that you put on there you know what i mean and then just that iconic martini glass shape it just really that 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 is the perfect home for this cocktail um I wanna talk about how you get there, some tips for doing sure. that. And and, and I, I suspect for the, the the kind of amateur bartenders that listen to us that, that, that might be a lot easier than they quite than they realize. Sure. Um before we do that though, I wanna just look at the other ingredients of this drink and, and and if you can list those a bit and tell me, you know, if you're making your desert island espresso martini, you know, or the last one you ever drink, <laughs> the ultimate espresso martini. What are some of the other ingredients you're going to use, and what are the considerations that you have in mind sure. for them?
1: So the espresso martini, because you're re- like the, at the whole antithesis of this is that it's a shakerado, right? You're, yeah. it's coming from you know Italy from that mindset of shaking espresso and emulsifying the coffee proteins to have that beautiful head. That's how you generate the head. It's not from heavy whipping cream. It's not making a dominicana. It's not you know using. Uh, An Irish cream or a bourbon cream. You do it by emulsifying those coffee proteins using your, you know, your muscles right Mm. as a bartender. (laughs) Um, And it's such an iconic serve for that purpose because you have that really dark cocktail and that really beautiful frothy head. Um, And I will tell you, the moment I realized that was when I looked at one of those like speed round lineups at at world class. And it was just a bunch of drinks that, you know, a bartender had made, a, a competitor had made. And one of them was an espresso martini. And so out of 10, 12 drinks, the only one I instantly recognized was the espresso martini. Yep. And so that was, that's when I learned the power and just how brilliant uh, Dick was putting it up like that. And, I mean, he did a lot of great things in his life. And he uh, raised a really, you know, some, a really lovely child. And, um, but that's one of the most brilliant things he did. Um, so when you look at the ingredients in an in espresso martini, I think you have to remember that dilution can mean a couple different things. In our world, in the bar world, dilution is too much, you know, how much water you're putting in the cocktail through shaking or, you know, if you're batching, just putting water directly into the cocktail. In the coffee world, dilution is how much coffee are you diluting, you know, into into your mixture of coffee and water. So the espresso martini, if you pull it up under the hood, it's kind of like this really beautiful marriage of barista training and bar training, And so you have to keep that in mind as a bartender that you're kind of entering into a world that maybe if you didn't come from the barista, the coffee world, you're kind of stepping in there. So you have to think like a barista. So really the power of getting that beautiful separation is to maintain a lot of coffee in the cocktail. So I usually try to push people towards less vodka. Vodka is super important or your base spirit doesn't have to be vodka. Uh, Vodka allows coffee to be the only, you know, real flavor ingredient. Um, but you could easily make tequila Spro. I, the Repo Spro is kind of my favorite right now, tequila Repo, Reposado. Very popular right so now. So good, yeah. But, I mean, some of my favorite are with Cognac. So you can really, really play in any space. Mm-hmm. The coffee flavor wheel and, and its its flavor profile is so complex that it literally mixes with anything that's found behind a bar. Anything. And really delicious. So play around with that for sure. But if you're talking about base spirit, you don't want to use too much. And I think that's the first thing that people, the first pitfall that people get into when mixing with you know coffee in general, and especially for the espresso martini, is that they use too much vodka. So with my recipe, I like to bring the vodka down a bit. You do want that proof, obviously, that, that you know it's a cocktail, you want the proof, but you don't want too much of it. Otherwise, it can get in the way of the other portion of this drink, which is coffee. And the coffee is super important, right? You want to have really good stuff. You want it to be fresh. You don't want it to be roasted, a year ago you don't want it to be uh ground (laughs) a year ago right you need to use fresh coffee and there's a couple ways to do that obviously best practice if you are at home you have a fancy espresso machine or um you have a coffee shop down the street from you you can go grab a couple shots before you go make them at home great in the bar world if you have a fancy espresso machine or you have access to a real simple like nespresso machine something that's pulling a fresh shot of espresso that's best case scenario that's why dante's espresso martini is so good. They're pulling those shots to order or they're pulling them an hour before they're using them. So it's just so fresh. And those fresh coffee proteins are so lovely when you emulsify them and they have this like pillowy head on top. Um, The next best case scenario is something else that can emulate the concentration of of coffee in espresso, which is why we always suggest a cold brew concentrate. And you want something when you're looking at the, you know, if, if you're in the grocery store, if you're at, You know, your coffee shop, you want something that's relatively concentrated. Hmm. You don't want to really be able to see through the container much if it's in a volume container. It's kind of like Mr. Black. If you pick it up to the light, you could barely see light through it, right? There's so much coffee in Mr. Black, 10 times the amount of coffee in an old-world coffee liqueur. So just so much. Um, And that is super impactful. So you you want as much of that coffee protein in there as possible. Cold brew works great. If you don't have that, like, obviously, you kind of start going into a world of you're going to either have to change the spec a lot or shake harder and just hope for the best, right? (laughs) Um, So coffee is super important. I highly suggest 100% Arabica coffee whenever possible. It's widely known to be a much better tasting coffee. Uh, If you have a a blend of Robusta and and Arabica, it tends to have to be over-roasted because most Robusta coffees are overly bitter and woody. And the intent with the over-roasting is to try to roast out some of the you know, the imperfections and huh. of the off notes of the coffee. Now, I'm not saying that all Robusta coffee is terrible. There are some really great uh, single origins and, and great coffees from Vietnam and, and a lot of other great coffee-growing regions. But just for the sake of this argument, look for arabica coffee whenever possible. And something to a light to medium roast mm-hmm. is usually what you're looking for. So those are kind of that. And then, you know, obviously water. So you want to filtered water, good ice cubes, whatever you've got. Um, and that's kind of the basis of the drink. My favorite recipe it'll sound weird when you know we're talking in terms of, of bartenders and how we're used to building drinks mm-hmm. but it's almost like flipping the spec like mm-hmm. an ounce and a half or 45 mils of, of mr black is what i suggest as you're holding all that coffee in there about an ounce of vodka your favorite base spirit you, you name it it's gonna be delicious 30 mils um uh, about the same about an ounce 30 mils of of either fresh espresso or cold brew concentrate if you have a fresh shot of espresso, I, I don't even, if it's really fresh, I just pulled it. I just put it right into the cocktail shaker. I don't worry about is it an ounce, is it an ounce yeah. and a quarter? Like it's, it's fine. It's going to be great. The more the merrier. It's going to be a real fluffy, delicious drink. Um, and then if you like a little bit more, you know, sugar, because Mr. Black actually has very light sugar, yep. um, really low bri- bricks, way lower than when you first taste it by itself, because you're tasting a lot of the density of the coffee in our liqueur, um, so you could add a bar spoon to a quarter ounce of rich, simple, rich Dem, simple, something like that. Yeah. Once again, I prefer that because it's a little less water. Yeah. And you can control the dilution. dilution. And then when, when I shake, and I, I think Dante was probably one of the first to do this, um, it's more of a whip shape with two to three ice cubes because you're, you know, you, you have to think about coffee as being like a fat ingredient, like, you know, cream like, or, yeah. or um, you know, or shot something like that. So you really need to emulsify it. Um to get that really beautiful frothy head and have it have it work well um so using using that technique will give you a chance to really get it get it going and really whip it up and have that really beautiful frothy head and dante i think takes it a step further where they might reverse dry shake it and then pour it and then almost like a ramus let it set because you know when you when you first pour an espresso martini it almost looks like you're pouring a guinness yes and you have to let like the the bubbles separate So they let that happen and let let kind of the fluffy head kind of set a little bit, and then they pour through it a little bit more, so it kind of hits the meniscus in this really lovely, lovely, pillowy way. That's that's the trick I've always
0: been taught, and it's been the one that I've that I've since pulled out. Yeah, I've been making them for friends, and it honestly, it really is you you know foolproof. Right, you know that that method really does work, especially if you're. You know, you're talking about methods like, you know, like a whip shake or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. And if you're not too confident in that, sure, then yeah, treat it like a Guinness in a way. Like, shake the hell out of it. Right. Ideally, don't over dilute it. But even if you're just practicing for visuals first, do it like the Guinness, and it always comes out looking just fantastic. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And, I'll, I'll roll around New York with uh, Zach, our, our Guinness ambassador here, <laughs> and uh, I love it that he and I will run around town. It's like such a similar world, you know, that he and I run in. <laughs> that we, it's always funny. Like, we're only drinking black things with creamy tops, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it it really is almost like a Guinness. I mean, you yeah. take, taste them side by side, obviously. Espresso martinis have a ton of coffee in them, so they do taste a little different, but they're in the same vein. The like, if you love a good Guinness, you're going to love an yeah. espresso martini and vice versa. Um, so that's really impactful. But if you're like looking to make a really good one at home and you don't have all these ingredients lying around, my favorite way to enjoy an espresso martini at home is just two ounces of Mr. Black and an ounce of whatever coffee you have. It could be leftover from drip. It could be, you know, leftover V60, Chemex, you name it, whatever you got. Espresso, if you have an espresso machine, shake that up however you want to shake it. And you probably have, you'll probably end up with more froth than cocktail. It's low BV, so you can have a few of them at home and they're just, Really lovely and delicious. Hmm. And it it's, it's really a great way to have it and a way for, you know, people at home mm-hmm. who don't have everything in front of them to be able to enjoy something that is very similar to what they would have at a place like Dante in nice. the end of the day. Nice. Yeah. Um, So aforementioned
0: recipe uh preferred glassware are you sticking with a classic
1: martini glass or are you maybe going for a coupe these days i'm assuming the garnish is three espresso beans so i kind of sure i that. mean health wealth hap- happiness right i mean dick was very very adamant about it <laughs> um and that's <laughs> a, a great glassy. way to have it obviously yeah. it, it's the most iconic looking serve with those three garnishes i like a coupe glass these days because it's a bit more modern um you know rianne whatever you want um mm-hmm. You know, old, old glassware is great, too, if you have some mm-hmm. vintage glassware, really lovely. I've always been fascinated with the with the martini glass in general, you know. Growing up in the era I grew up in, like, my old band's uh, logo had a martini in the middle over the B. Like, the B was <laughs> elongated and had the martini above and below it. That's cool. Um, so, about, like, that works, too. Um, and the beans, obviously, are, are most traditional. But I I find that, especially in, like, volume, I prefer some sort of like a cinnamon-sugar-salt mixture because it doesn't choke you. Like, that's the one sad thing about the beans is that as you're drinking you it, want it to eat you them. end up with one in your <laughs> mouth and you're like, you know, in a social setting, you're like trying to pick it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is most iconic. And yeah. that's how I usually serve them.
0: So too big for a Nicanora, the build that we're talking about here. Probably. I mean, yeah, you could, you could <sighs> unless just you cut it just down. Do 50, 50, maybe we want to have a midday
1: espresso martini. We'll right? split one between two there. Yeah. Maybe go for that. I mean, I've definitely served thousands of espresso martinis in Nick and Nora's. Mm-hmm. But those thousands would probably be about 15 to 20 percent of the espresso <laughs> martinis I've shaken in my ears. <laughs> All right. Uh,
0: simple yes or no question for you here. All right, let's go. Parmesan. Not for me.
1: <laughs> Political. I like it. But I will tell you that these influencers that did the Parmesan thing, they stumbled across something I just mentioned, right, you know, a few minutes ago, which is that... The flavor wheel? The... Yeah, like exactly. salty... Salty, savory things go really well with coffee, yes. Creaminess goes really well with sweetness. No, it works. They stumbled across it. So of course. I was not shocked when people were like, oh, it's delicious. Did you try it? I'm like, I know it's delicious because I've mixed so many things (laughs) in that same part of the flavor wheel, right? But the Italian in me, even though my my last name is Polish, I'm mostly Italian-American, first generation, it's just like for how long that wheel of cheese sat around in Parma, I just can't yeah. put that in a cocktail, right? Like, yeah, yeah, the Italian to yeah. me just won't. And I'm like using the iconic <laughs> Italian uh, hand gesture while I'm, you know, for all of you at home that can't see it. Yeah. Um, as I'm like in- reinforcing that, that that's not for it's, me. Yeah. It works. It works on paper,
0: yeah. it works in real life. We like it. I'm going to say never would have been a thing if we didn't have video based social media. And I'm going to leave it there. Um, <laughs> Stefan, I'm going to ask you, before we move into our weekly five questions to finish, to round out the show today. Yeah, um, I'm sure you have plenty more thoughts on the espresso <laughs> martini. But I'm gonna nail you down to one. Any one final thought about the espresso martini? The conversation we've had today that we might not have brought up.
1: Man, we like really went through most of the espresso martini. It's just the the dissipation of the coffee aromas into the air here. You know. We're yeah. just, you know. Listen, I'll tell you. Uh, this is what I've learned about the espresso martini: is it hits people in a a part of of their like subconscious that love language comes out when they talk about the espresso martini. Because there's, it pretty much takes them to their favorite cup of coffee. And I think it all goes back to that, like, what is the real MVP? Like, here in the U.S., it's coffee. And whether you think about it or not, and most people don't know how coffee gets from this beautiful, lovely tropical fruit that we call cherries, you know, in, in, in very remote regions of the world, to this dark, roasty, toasty, bitter cup that we have every day. Like, most people don't think of that. They will be transported to their favorite cup of coffee when they have a proper espresso martini. And it just hits them in a, in a spot that I think a lot of people almost take, you know, might take for granted. But when they have a good one, they're just blown away. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do beyond the fact that the cocktail is so iconic. People know what they're going to have if they have a good espresso martini. and It's going to really hit them in some really lovely places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The coffee should be celebrated. It's a magical thing. I think just hearing you
0: talk about that, I, I think for me, and again, I'm I'm putting myself on the spot here, but <laughs> I think the coffee might be the only, and I'm going to say food stuff here, comestible. Mm-hmm. Okay, we drink it, we ingest That's it. Great work, know, but, great work. Yeah. The only one that exists that regardless of whether you love, hate, or are indifferent to the taste of it, I guarantee you love the smell of it. A hundred percent.
1: It's... Nate, yeah. is there
0: anything else out there maybe chocolate there's a lot of crossover sure. there too oh, right? but, we but, could have a yeah, whole yeah, yeah, deep dive yeah. in that, <laughs>
1: that episode upcoming
0: yeah <laughs> yeah good garnish as well by the way <laughs> I'm just pulling out my imaginary I'm just miming the uh <laughs> the grating effect here in the it. studio um well folks listen we're going to do it we are going to head into the final section of the show Seven had some time to prepare. Uh, that is a spoiler alert for the, for the listeners there. We do allow you to listen to them. But <laughs> listen, the show's out there. You could you could listen to other episodes and you'd know the questions anyway. True. We're going to kick off with number one, as is customary. And that is, of course, what style or category even of spirit enjoys the most real estate on your back bar or did because
1: you're not working a bar full time? Mezcal. Mezcal. Always. Yeah. Southern California. I spent a lot of time in Mexico it's just this incredible ancestral spirit and the where it comes from is one of the most magical places on earth and it has a lot to do with the fact that some of the best coffee grown in the world is in the mountains just above where the agave grow mhm a sugar cane there as well producing yep. some fine rums That's, um nah and the people in the in the culinary culture down there is uh, yeah it it's it's beyond right it's like way predates the spanish settlements and it's still very very much ingrained Mm -hmm. and and all of that Mm -hmm. is pulled into the bottles yeah yeah
0: it's no phenomenal phenomenal we talk about culinary culture you know that's you know so much there um question number two which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal
1: yeah for this one i would have to say your non-dominant hand i think so many bartenders if they're they're right-handed you just bartend right-handed if you're trying to make a career out of this highly suggest using your non-dominant hand learning it and switching in mid-shift to take some pressure off of your shoulders your back your neck you're gonna thank me later it might it might suck for a minute <laughs> like my, when my dad used to teach me and impri- impress this on me it used to be a pain point for me but i 20 plus years behind the stick and i've had almost no injuries no pain and that is a large testament to using your non-dominant hand. And use two hands on your cocktail shaker, Mm. please. (laughs) Do yourself a favor. Extend your lifespan. I love that too as well because,
0: you know, let's be honest. It's going to happen, or I knew this in the kitchen. It's going to come for you one time. You're going to cut your hand, or you might have an accident. You might sprain a wrist or whatever. You don't want to be missing out on a week's worth of shifts or whatever. you know. And then you're going to be forced to do it. So get ready. I love it. That is definitely 121 episodes in. That is definitely (laughs) the first time we've had a non-dominant hand. I love to see it. Uh, Question number
1: three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Stay humble. Be a good human and be yourself. I think we can all get a little carried away sometimes. We're all here for the same reason, to make memories. And we all do the same job all over the U.S. You know, I've been very lucky to be able to travel all over the place and meet a lot of people. And the ones that stick out with me are the ones that are just unapologetically them and just good humans. Fine words
0: there, fine words. All right, penultimate question. If you could only visit one last bar in your life hypothetical, real, or otherwise, what would it be?
1: You know, I, you did give me the questions before, and this was the hardest one. I didn't know how I was going to answer it, but I think at the end of the day, it has to be the one that brings you the most joy, and that usually is your local. And uh, up until very recently, my local was a bar in San Diego called the Turf Supper Club, a very special spot. I don't know if you've been. Um, Not yet. Yeah, it's a, for all intents and purposes, it's a dive bar uh, that also sells food, that you have to cook yourself on a communal grill. So, kind of like an old school supper club. So, you can get, and they serve food up to 1 a.m. So, if you're first cut, clean up your well, say goodbye to everybody, run to Turf Club. Meet your friend, meet your mates there, because and you
0: buy you buy weight, right? The meat. Am I making this up? Either someone has mentioned this on the show, or it might have been friend of the show, Eric Castro, who's also San Diego yeah, based Eric, too. Yeah, Eric and I are. Eric yeah. probably put. Eric has probably told me about this one. This before. This is probably
1: his too. I, I would presume because we've we've had many meal there together, and with especially with Patino. Um, but yeah, no, that's the spot. They, they they just have steak, and it's gone up in price in the seventeen years that I've been going there. Right, like five hundred percent. Right. But we all still go. It used to be you know seventeen years ago you could get a baseball steak for seven seventy five with a side, you know, and you cook it yourself at midnight, you know, um but yeah, that's the spot it's it's very communal. you know everybody it's almost like cheers if you if you've spent any time in San Diego, the whole industry shows up there um right around you know last last call at like ten from ten to midnight you know that that area uh when they get off work to commiserate, have a steak, have a late night food, and uh Just hang out. As one does, just a late night steak. Some of the worst cocktails you ever have. (laughs) uh, Beer
0: in a shot kind of place. But honestly, my Desert Island bar. Yeah, love it. I got to get out there. Um, Stefan, final question for you here today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was
1: going to be your last, what would you order or make? For me, it's always a Negroni. And it, you know, if I'm being honest these days, I have more coffee Negronis than, you know, just your run-of-the-mill equal parts Negroni. Either or, doesn't really matter. Something bitter is stirred with just enough of that like pop of acidity that you mm-hmm. get from the vermouth. So That's you go do. coffee Negroni, you're talking, so you're replacing Campari with the Mr. Black and... No, I no. still think you kind of need them all, right? My favorite coffee Negroni spec, sorry, this is a little no, bonus, I like it. bonus yeah. on this episode, um, <laughs> is one part Mr. Black, one part... You know, your base spirit, whether it's gin, mezcal, you name it. Um, Three-quarter Campari and half vermouth. You could easily sub coffee liqueur for either the Campari or the vermouth. But if you do with the Campari, then you're losing a lot of that really beautiful bitterness. If you sub out all of the vermouth, you need to stir it longer first and foremost, right? Because it's higher alcohol content. But then you're missing out on all the lovely wine characteristics. You know, that kind of pop of acidity, the lower, you know, proof vibes the red fruit vibes that really play well against the coffee. So I yeah. use them all. Wow. Um, I'm going to share a bonus thing here at the end. I'm not going
0: to put I you on it. the spot and ask this. Bonus. But I got to share an anecdote that, that that maybe you'll appreciate that, that suggests that, Stefan, you've done fine work. The whole team at Mr. Black have done fine work. There is still some work to do, which is good because... I feel like you're they a man got. who enjoys a challenge here. <laughs> so, you know, you're previously of San Diego. Um, Correct. A little further north in Los Angeles. Was out there last year, um, bar, DTLA, hotel bar. Very famous hotel, or it's it's been in a bunch of movies. It's uh, Let's just say it has a very interesting architectural form. It looks like something that might have been in Die Hard. I don't know whether it was, but it's not an old school one, right? Futuristic looking hotel. Don't want to name it for obvious reasons. And I sit there, and one of my favorite things to do, sit at the bar at a hotel bar and just hang out with guests, see what else is going on. Um, This is my worst espresso martini I've ever seen oh in my life. We've all had them. There's a man next to me, a veteran. Uh, his name was John Gotti, actually, <laughs> wasn't the John Not Gotti the one, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but uh, we got chatting anyway, you know. And he's like, "You know what? I've been hearing about this espresso martini all the time." He's like, "What's the fuss about?" And I was like, "It's a really popular drink, man." So he goes, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna order one. I'm gonna try it." Orders an espresso martini from the bartender, and I'm watching the bartender because where this is a complete circle bar. From where I am, I can see him. He goes next to the uh, espresso machine. He's got one of those, you know, beakers of coffee that was probably pulled at the start of the shift. Uh, He goes, looks like one and a half, two ounces of that into the shaker. One and a half or two ounces of Irish coffee liqueur. Ice, shakes it up about three or four times, then strains it into a room temperature or warm martini glass. Goes... (laughs) Bombers. goes with the espresso the, the espresso being garnish hands it over says to the man enjoy I don't want to say anything to the guy <laughs> so I'm just sat there nursing my own regular martini he proceeds to drink two or three sips he turns around to me you know we just met he goes Tim you know what I don't think I get it <laughs> I said that sir that Mr. that Mr. Gotti is because you still have never tried an espresso martini right and then we just parted ways and we left there but some work still to be done.
1: Well, that's good, right? Which uh, is
0: why we're here in the I'm studio today. I'm not retired. Today. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think, you know, there we're getting there, but there's a lot of areas and honestly, and it's probably, I guess, partly my fault because I was in Southern California for so long and a lot of people in Southern California still still haven't mastered what is the magic behind the espresso martini, right? Yeah. And I, And that's great. That means that there's a lot of room for improvement. There's a lot of education that can take place. There's a lot of people who still make Sam Ross's Dominicana when people order an espresso martini, which is another really great drink, Mm -hmm. but it's not an espresso martini, right? It's a stirred down rum drink, although people sometimes use vodka when they're replacing an espresso martini with it, with a whipped cream float, right? And that's great. That's cool. But that's not the drink. That's something else completely. Um, So there's a lot of work still to do. And I think that's great. But you guys are doing amazing work, and and, and I think you know I'm I'm gonna pat myself
0: on the back here and say <laughs> we've added to it here today. Uh, Absolutely, listeners. Stefan and I, we're gonna head out. We got some coffee to crush. You know, we got some errands to run. Um, you know, thank you for listening along with us. Just want to point out as well, if you guys aren't listening to some of the other fantastic podcasts in the Vine Pair Network, we got the Vine Pair podcast twice a week, industry goings on, breaking everything down. We got Wine 101, the best wine education in the on the internet, bar none. And we got Tap Lines, which Tap Lines is kind of like the beer equivalent of Cocktail College, but it's not. It's a deep dive into history. It's a different guest every week. Listeners, if you're not familiar with them, check it out. But in the meantime, Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the coffee. It's been a blast. I can't wait for the next one. This was great. Thanks for having me. And thanks, y'all. We'll see you out there on the trail. Fantastic. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, Go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Chirino, and art director Danielle Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. Cocktail College is brought to you by Mr. Black Cold Brew Coffee Liqueur. Listener, You want to know the secret to a great espresso martini? It's not the vodka, although the vodka does matter. But no, it's the coffee liqueur. And you want to know the secret to a great coffee liqueur? It's coffee. That might sound like a no-brainer, but until Mr. Black came along, people weren't really talking about that. People weren't pulling their own espresso shots in the morning. They didn't care about things like where their coffee came from or when it's roasted. But this is what sets Mr. Black apart. It's made using the finest Arabica coffee cold brew. And you can really taste the difference. And I'm not just saying that because we're partnering with Mr. Black today. I'm saying bartenders have been telling me that for years. Seriously, I remember when it first came along and everyone was recommending it. And I was like, I got to try this thing. And when I did, I got it. The funny thing is that was years before Espresso Martini Mania and here we are and guess what? Mr. Black is now available nationwide. Head to mrblack.co to find the closest retailer to you.